Welcome to Tales of American History, the Witnessing History Education Foundation podcast, educating Americans to understand the history of their country and of other countries so that they will appreciate the value of America's unique free institutions. It is history that teaches us to hope. Become an American hero who participates in our mission by joining us at witnessinghistory.org, the website of the Witnessing History Education Foundation. View for free the Foundation's documentary films on the website and on the Foundation's YouTube platform. View also the Foundation's free teacher education materials that conform to grade-level education standards, both on the Witnessing History website and at pbslearning.org. Follow Witnessing History on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Give generously to the Foundation on the website and support its current project, a three-part film series on the American Revolution for public and cable television, in honor of our country's 250th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Now, take a journey back through time with Kent Masterson Brown and his guest, and let their storytelling transport you to the most compelling moments in American history. Today, Kent's guest is Cameron Sowers, a doctoral candidate in history at the University of Kentucky here in Lexington. Cameron is a 2021 graduate of Gettysburg College, where he studied with Dr. Peter Carmichael, another guest on the Witnessing History podcast. He currently studies at the University of Kentucky with our podcast guest, Dr. Amy Taylor, whose research interests are in the area of the Civil War and Reconstruction in the South. Today, Cameron will discuss his research on the writer F. Scott Fitzgerald, author of The Beautiful and the Damned, The Great Gatsby, and other well-known writings, who, posits Cameron, found in the Confederacy's lost cause a beauty and poignancy Fitzgerald expressed in his novels and short stories. Welcome, Cameron. Cameron, uh, welcome. Thank you, Ken. It's so good to have you here. This is, I've been and, looking uh, forward to this. I trust you're enjoying life in Lexington uh, and the University of Kentucky. Uh, it is wonderful. I Kentucky Tourism puts out some great pamphlets, and I've been very impressed that I've, I've gotten to live those pamphlets. <laughs> Bluegrass, horse racing, <laughs> bourbon, uh, life in Lexington's treated me well. <laughs> well, that's terrific, uh, and, and, and welcome here. Um, you have an interesting uh, take on— um, F. Scott Fitzgerald. Um, you're a Civil War uh, student, and you were in college, and you are now, and you plan to be in, in your professorial uh, uh, mode later on. Um, and that uh, you you feel that uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald weaves Civil War, uh, the Civil War, in and out of all of his great novels. Mm -hmm. And um, I want to get into that in detail. And first of all, though, I'd like you to kind of, for the, for the, the listening public, mm -hmm. kind of tell us about Fitzgerald's life. Yeah, sure. Uh, mm -hmm. So Fitzgerald is born in the late 1890s. He's born to um, a middle-class family in St. Paul, Minnesota that used to be wealthy. Mm -hmm. um, on his father's side, an old colonial Maryland family. Mm -hmm. um, on his mother's side of the family is a, a wholesale grocery business. Mm -hmm. 
And they have the wealthy enough relatives to give Scott a pretty good education as a kid. Um, and it ends up he gets sent to Princeton, which mm-hmm. is really where he starts to come into his own, um, develops the literary flair that mm-hmm. we know him for for his entire career. Um, but he was not a good student. Um, and so he ends up <laughs> um, flunking out, dropping out to serve in the First World War, he thinks. Um, but he never makes it overseas. Mm-hmm. Um, which puts him at odds with who's going to dominate the the literature marketplace mm-hmm. for his for his lifetime. Um, Ernest Hemingway's great novels are about going overseas and fighting, and Scott laments that he never gets to do this. Right. So he writes about what he knows, mm-hmm. and that's the Roaring Twenties. Mm-hmm. He is the articulator of a vibrant, um, culturally expressive America in the wake of the First World War. Mm-hmm. He is New York City. Um, the flappers image is one that he really works to create. Him and his wife Zelda live a lifestyle for the tabloids. Mm-hmm. Um, but as America hits the Great Depression, uh, Fitzgerald seems to be at odds with mm-hmm. what Americans would like to read about. The tales of extravagance and splendor don't seem to connect with a, an America of the of the 1930s struggling at the same moment that Scott's alcoholism becomes problematic and interferes with his writing. Um, and his wife, Zelda, um, is institutionalized in sanitariums, both overseas and domestically, as she struggles with mental illness. Right. And so he spends the 1930s um, really opposite of what his 1920s were in the 30s. He is financially broken, emotionally struggling. Um, and he spends the last few years of his career working in Hollywood um, as a screenwriter when he dies kind of unexpectedly um, in December in 1940 of a heart attack. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the time of his death, he was largely forgotten. His work is all out of print for the most part. Um, and he laments that the royalty, the last royalty check he gets are all from copies of his books that he bought. Mm -hmm. Um, that he had to track down. Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, a career of ups and downs, but uh, one that's really resuscitated um, after the Second World War by a generation of scholars who are interested in him. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Interesting. You say he was born in St. Paul, Minnesota. Mm -hmm. Um, His father was from an old Maryland family. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Tell me about uh, his father Edward's uh, family. Yeah. So Edward's family is colonial Maryland. Fitzgerald actually writes about it um, in an introduction to a historic Homes of Maryland guide um, that he was asked to contribute to in the late 1930s. And he's very proud of his family's old heritage. Um, But I think what's most interesting for me is that Edward um, is born in uh, Rockville, Maryland in the late 1850s, um, which becomes a, a site of some Civil War contests. Sure. Edward um, will go on and tell Scott when he's a child that Edward rode a Confederate spy across the Rockville River um, when Jubal Early comes into Maryland in 1864. Mm -hmm. And um, he would tell him about watching Confederate cavalry ride by, and it becomes early inspiration for Scott. But Edward was very much a Southern gentleman and manners and in raising and he tries to instill that in Scott to mix success, but definitely leaves a lasting impression on him. Mm-hmm. Well, it, to show his interest in his family history, you only have to look at Fitzgerald's name. Yeah. Francis and... Scott uh, Fitzgerald, mm-hmm. name for 
his, what, second cousin, three times removed, yeah. uh, Francis He's, Scott Key. Yeah. It's actually Francis Scott Key of Fitzgerald. Mm -hmm. But um, uh, so he's a collateral descendant mm -hmm. of Francis Scott Key, the um, uh, author of the, uh, the National Anthem. Mm -hmm. um, and um, his allegiance to the Old South mm -hmm. uh, seems to have, it had to have been rev revised and uplifted when he met his future wife. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us about her. Yeah. So um, Zelda Sayer is the daughter of one of Alabama's most prominent families. Mm -hmm. um, her father, Anthony, was a high-profile judge in Alabama in the early um, 19 um, teens. Her dad is still serving in the court. Uh, her family uh, are socialites. Her grandfather um, was an architect of the Confederate White House um, uncles were prominent newspapermen in Civil War, Montgomery, Alabama. Um, one biographer of Zelda said if that there was such thing as a Confederate aristocracy, that Zelda Sayer came from it, uh, wow. which I think really says a lot yeah. um, about where Zelda's from. She even goes to Sydney Lanier High School, which is named for, you know, Lanier's most famous as a musician, but uh, Lanier also served in the Confederate mm -hmm. uh, Navy, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, so Zelda is... Um, she is very beautiful in the 19-teens, um, which is convenient for all of the U.S. Army soldiers that are stationed at Camp Sheridan in Montgomery, who all desire a date or even a dance with Zelda. <laughs> um, and she becomes something of an urban legend among yeah. fraternity parties at the nearby universities and for the young men stationed at Camp Sheridan. I see. I see. He, he actually, uh, this is during World War I. Mm -hmm. And he is actually uh, as a as a lieutenant, yeah, uh, sent to uh, Camp Sheridan, mm -hmm. and that's how he gets to meet her. Yeah, he's a he's a doughboy, yeah. uh, but never gets overseas. Yeah. But he does find his 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 future wife there. Yeah. Now, tell me, I you've mentioned in the past where I've heard you t speak, yeah. and you've spoken on about this all over including the Kentucky Civil War Roundtable uh, last week, um, that um, they courted often in the Confederate Cemetery in um, Montgomery. Yeah. Tell us about that. Yeah. So um, in Montgomery, there's this, an old cemetery called Oakwood Cemetery, uh -huh. which after the Civil War, a group of prominent uh, Montgomery women, all still relatively wealthy after the war, raised funds to bring back dead Confederate remains. So mm -hmm. Confederate soldiers who had been killed and were buried in battlefields across theaters of the war. Um, the federal government had no plans for Confederate remains. They were very focused on establishing national cemeteries Correct. at places like Gettysburg or right. Arlington. Um, so uh, these private organizations called um, Ladies Memorial Associations right. fund the repatriation of Confederate remains. Um, and so they create this massive uh, section of Oakwood Cemetery, which by the time Scott and Zelda are there, has a couple hundred mm -hmm. Confederate graves, um, including some famous figures of the Civil War, like a William Oates, mm -hmm. who's colonel of sure. the 15th, 15th Alabama, Alabama. Yeah. at Little Round Top. That's right. Um, so there are some prominent um, Alabama Civil War figures there. Um, but the cemetery is meant as a social space. Um, it is for promenading. It has into the ground and its structure 
uh, values that make it a social space for young white Southerners. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a large part of the successor to the uh, Ladies' Memorial Associations were the United Daughters of the Confederacy, mm-hmm. who still exist today. Um, but the UDC was very interested in creating programming and a narrative um, that appealed to young white Southerners or even um, people across the country um, to have a certain narrative about the Civil War. And Zelda, as a young child of the South, was very much um, into that. And Scott, who was fascinated with history as a child, also right. consumes part of that. So they feel very at home in, yeah. in cemeteries, in the Confederate cemetery. It's a, a place for them to be alone. It's a mm-hmm. quiet place um, and one that becomes very romantic for them. Yeah. You know, we forget about uh, cemeteries uh, and their role, uh, particularly in the 19th century. Mm-hmm. Um that's the age before the Civil War of the rural cemetery movement that started in Paris, France, and uh, Boston had one of the first rural cemeteries, and they were designed to be like you're in the in the uh, a, a beautiful rural setting, yeah. ponds and streams and trees and uh, paths that you could wander on. And people used to picnic in the cemetery. Families did. And they Mm -hmm. were encouraged to. I mean, that's what it was for. And so the idea of these two uh, strolling in a cemetery and enjoying their time together in a cemetery in their day and time was not unusual. Absolutely. It's just that for him, he's doing it in a Confederate cemetery. Uh, almost exclusively, um, and if it's not exclusively there, I mean, everybody else buried in that cemetery had Confederate to, yeah. uh, contacts. I yeah. mean, some of them were officers, some of them were whatever, uh, political figures. But this was not an unusual thing to do. Absolutely. But it had apparently a lasting impact upon Fitzgerald. Yeah. So— Continue with this, yeah. with his with his with the story. Yeah. yeah. So the kind of I guess the the intro to it I'll give is that Fitzgerald tells his editor Maxwell Perkins, mm-hmm. um, who Civil War buffs may know as the editor of Douglas Southall Freeman's biographies of Robert E. Lee. So Perkins is himself one of he's one of the great men of letters in yeah. the 20th century. But yeah. um, Fitzgerald tells his editor um, when he's writing this short story called The Ice Palace. Yeah. And he says, I'm writing this story because the idea came from a girl who told me I would never understand how she felt about Confederate graves. And I told her I understood so well I could put it on paper. Wow. And this is at a moment where him and Zelda don't marry right after the war. Right. Her father is hesitant about her um, being engaged to a wannabe novelist. Uh-huh. Um, and so it's not <laughs> until Fitzgerald gets a contract in the first royalties check yeah. uh, that him and Zelda can be married. Right. Um, so he takes um, in this story, The Ice Palace, which gets reused in his first novel, This Side of Paradise, this Side of Paradise. Um, an excerpt from, from Zelda's letters to him mm-hmm. um, that she wrote in 1919, where she says, while walking through Oakwood Cemetery, these were just men, unimportant evidently, or they wouldn't have been unknown, but they died for the most beautiful thing in the world, the dead South. You see, people have these dreams they fasten on to, and I've always grown up with that dream. I've tried to live up in a way to the past standards. These are just the last remnants of it, you know. 
strange courtliness and chivalry, stories of the boys I used to hear from a Confederate soldier who lived next door. Oh, Harry, she says to her lover, there was something, there was something. I couldn't make you understand, but it was there. Wow. And there is this ephemeral fleeting in the air romance she finds about it. Um, comforting, right? The cemetery you, after we're talking here of Zelda. Yes, yes. Yeah. This is Zelda's passage. This is Zelda. This is his wife. Yes, future the, wife. Yes, yeah. And that she writes to him, and he cuts and pastes it almost as he does through a lot of his fiction. Borrows heavily wow. on um, him and Zelda's letters, and he puts it into the ice palace. And one of the concluding passages of this side of paradise is interestingly the same passage about walking through a Civil War cemetery except any mention of Confederate has been replaced with Union, Uh which is interesting uh, decision to make for a novel that comes out in 1919. Do you think that was an editor? Um, if you've ever had, if you ever have the the displeasure of reading the first edition of This Side of Paradise, it doesn't seem like an editor came anywhere near that <laughs> manuscript. Um, Scott is an admittedly horrible speller and terrible with grammar, and so the really? fir- one of the the first edition reviews of his novel are this is a great story. Um, but the grammar and spelling are terrible. And so I, I would attribute that then to uh, a, a decision that Scott makes uh-huh. in the novel, which I don't know why. I'm sure he had some reason for it. Yeah. Um, but that he still feels that an audience, a reading audience, and a very popular novel in his lifetime, This Side of Paradise is his bestseller, would understand a romance and a feeling about a Civil War cemetery. Wow. Um, which I think is a powerful way of thinking about Civil War memory um, oh, yeah. in the 1920s when oh, yeah. we often think of Fitzgerald as the you know, Leonardo DiCaprio Great Gatsby film. Right. Um, but he is very, very deeply contemplative about the past. This Side of Paradise was published in 1920, 1920. I think. Is that okay. right? Yeah. Yeah, that sounds right. And um, it, uh, uh, it, it covers the life of this Amory Blaine um, um, and um, his his love and life. I mean, it even has a Monsignor in this thing, just like he had, you know, uh, he went to a Catholic school in New Jersey and then Princeton, but a Monsignor uh, guided him in his early life mm-hmm. as well. And you see this come into uh, this side of paradise. Tell, tell the the listeners real succinctly what is this side of paradise about this side of paradise is one of the great college novels that's ever <laughs> written um it's it, the first work the i love the the working title of it that was the first um submission which mm-hmm. was rejected and it was called the romantic egoist mm-hmm. um, and it's very much it's a thinly veiled fiction it's really about scott's life um, his time at Princeton, mm-hmm. and there is a gap that is his service in the First World War, mm-hmm. service domestically, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and then the novel resumes. But it has a lot of the themes about love, money, wealth, um, and coming of age in the 1920s mm-hmm. that, that dominate his fiction during that period. Mm-hmm. It's a very, it is um, popular fiction. It's not been, I think, subjected to the same scrutiny that something like Gatsby has been. Um, but at its time, it was a, a smashing success for him. Yeah, that's what put him on the map. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
tell me, uh, uh, apart from his reference to the cemetery, mm-hmm. um, are there other passages in there that bring the Civil War uh, into focus anywhere? Not really in this side of paradise, which makes this section's inclusion all the more interesting. Yeah. Um, I think a really interesting reading of the novel would be to just substitute Armory Blaine for Fitzgerald to put him in and see that that's something that then has power over him. Yeah. Uh, Because the novel is very much his story um, and his life. So I think that cemetery visit has enough power over him to mm-hmm. to then warrant its inclusion into a novel that's very much about um, his late teens and early twenties. I see, I see. Um, he, um, I love he, his generation, the World War One generation. Mm-hmm. We're literally the lost generation. Yeah. They refer to him as the lost generation, mm-hmm. and he's now coming of age in what's going to be the jazz age yeah. generation. And how how would you say, what would you say um, Fitzgerald thinks about this new generation? Yeah, he uh, Fitzgerald's very interested in actually generational theory. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a a, a, not, or a a memoir that's written by a bookstorekeeper in Western North Carolina, where uh-huh. Fitzgerald spends a summer in the 1930s, mm-hmm. and Fitzgerald tells him about how war defines generations and that his generation that experienced the First World War was all going to embody certain characteristics, which is really, he -hmm. ends up defining the lost generation of a generation scarred and traumatized by war. Um, But he is the jazz age. Um, His first short story collection is called Flappers and Philosophers, (laughs) which is his view um, exactly uh, of that generation that he is both um, at once, um, interested in the flapper, which Zelda um, kind of is really in the media. That's what she is. The short bobbed haircut. One of his famous early stories is called Bernice Bob's Her Hair. It's all about the radical act of cutting your hair short as a young woman. And he is the face of it from um, jumping into fountains in New York City, crazy nights um, <laughs> that become something of tabloid legends. Uh-huh. Um, he really straddles this line between a lost generation, but is a public face of the jazz age as well. Yeah, yeah. Someone described him as um, the, uh, as one who became the outstanding aggressor in the little warfare which divided our middle class in the 20s. That is a wonderful way to put it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. His, his, his writings of the, his particularly essays of the 1920s are a fascinating look at money. Um, he writes a, a story, How to Live on $36,000 a Year, which is an exorbitant, exorbitant sum, amount of sum. money. I mean, yeah. that's still probably more than I think a lot of people make in, in 2022. <laughs> um, that he's, I say that as a grad student. Um, he's writing, um, but he writes this about how hard it is to live so wealthy that when you're that wealthy, you just spend money and it goes. Yeah. And a few years later, he writes a follow-up to it called How to Live on Practically Nothing at All, which is a recognition that uh, the 1920s end with the stock market crash. Are these short stories? Uh, yeah, they're, they're essays. I think essays. they're published in Vanity Fair. Okay. Um, and he writes um, he writes some essays that are reflecting on the fact that he is a public persona and yeah. some things don't even need to be fictionalized. <laughs> uh, 
Well, um, in, in so so the cemetery is the one thing he brings into mm. um, uh, this side of paradise, uh, which is his. You know, he's coming out of the gate on yeah. this one. This is his uh, his maiden voyage, so to speak. His next one in 1920 was The Beautiful and the Damned. Um, tell us about that one. Yeah, so The Beautiful and Damned is about Anthony and Gloria Patch, um, mm-hmm. a young couple. I think they start the novel engaged or dating and soon to be wed. Um, but they spend uh, most of the novel waiting for Patch's grandfather to die so they mm-hmm. can get his inheritance. Mm-hmm. And what they describe grandfather Patch in the novel was that he was a rough and tumble man who was willing to make some shady or some difficult hard backroom deals on Wall Street. Mm-hmm. And Fitzgerald implies that grandfather Patch learned these values serving in a New York regiment during the Civil War. <laughs> so we see that Patch's grandfather who kind of looms over the novel as they're trying to get his money, uh-huh. waiting for the inheritance um, that he's a Civil War veteran. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Patch and Mrs. Patch during the novel make a brief, it's only in the novel, about three-page excursion to Arlington House, mm-hmm. the home of Robert E. Lee, which is at this moment the grounds of an emergingly large Arlington National Cemetery, but right. you can still... Uh, tore the house. Mm-hmm. And through Gloria Patch, Fitzgerald talks about um, what the past means and historic preservation. Gloria was particularly troubled by the fact that you could use the bathroom in Robert E. Lee's house as a tourist <laughs> and thought it was a, a corruption of the dignity and the old values of the house. And her and Anthony go back and forth about what the past's role in the present is. And Gloria Ooh. says, trying to keep the past alive is like preserving a dead man with stimulants. And so it's visiting Arlington House that they're working through the past and its role in their present and their lives. Um, they compare it to the Sleepy ho- Hollow Graveyard and a letter of John Keats, who is Fitzgerald's favorite author, mm-hmm. um, about what should be preserved and what shouldn't. Fascinating. Does he... Um uh, it, it, it seems to me that um, Fitzgerald, one, has a terrific respect for the past. Mm-hmm. And in this case, that era of the Civil War, mm-hmm. those people, not the war, but those people, and their ideals and their mores and their, their, their civilization, and that he looks at his own in the future, kind of dimly, like this doesn't, this isn't what it should be. Yeah. Am I correct in that? Yeah. Yeah. He, um, I think the best example of that is an essay he writes in 1927 about Princeton. He mm-hmm. returns to his alma mater in quotation marks because he doesn't mm-hmm. get a diploma until an honorary <laughs> one in like the late 19... They finally late... had to give him one. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think, yeah, he's, he's, he's long dead. They give it to his daughter oh, at that, dear, at that really? point. Oh, uh, dear, Because... Couldn't um, face him. He did, not, he did not leave the university on good terms <laughs> and was a less than stellar alumni representative for them at moments. Yeah. Um, when he's brought back as an alumni to a theater production, he gives a speech thoroughly intoxicated. Uh, that puts a damper over the uh, alumni homecoming. 
Um, but he writes visiting Princeton that he has a hard time conjuring up the Princeton that exists before the Civil War. He says um, in, the, in, the, in the essay that the chain of the history of man parted at the Civil War, mm. always the broken link in the continuity of American life, uh, which is what I've really kind of titled this project yeah, and what my yeah. drafts are saved as is a broken link. The broken link. Like that, uh, so many scholars who do wonderful work thinking about the First World War in this time mm-hmm. period write about it as a violent rupture mm-hmm. for the artist to experience it. Someone like Ernest Hemingway or John Dos Passos. Mm-hmm. And a part of my work posits that for Fitzgerald, who never makes it overseas, mm-hmm. that it's his deep interest in history mm-hmm. that really creates a rupture from him about the relationship between the past and the present. That the modernity that enters Western Europe through the First World War to me, in Fitzgerald, uh, to me, in my reading of Fitzgerald, entered American life through the Civil War, mm-hmm. um, which Civil War historians have debated all of the time about the modern implications of the conflict and its tactics and things. But yeah. um, on a, a much broader level, its values yeah. seem to have a rupture for Fitzgerald. Yeah, yeah. What did he think was grand about that past, mm-hmm. do you think? He is very much, though he's born in St. Paul, he's very much a Southern man. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, establish him as a Southern writer gives these key ends to his very strong interest in belief and what he would call old-fashioned values, things mm-hmm. like chivalry, right. manner, a gentility, to, to retreat and be the man of letters. Right. Um, he finds something in those that um, ideal of honor in mm-hmm. antebellum and Civil War Southern men, mm-hmm. like historians like Bertram Wyatt Brown have right. written about, that that is very much how he thinks Southern men, how he thinks men should be. But he recognizes that those values were kind of, were one, defeated during the Civil War and have since been wiped away by a very industrial America mm-hmm. um, at this moment mm-hmm. in the 1920s. Yeah. Um, r- Totally, um, totally fascinating. Um, and so his novels, uh, in these novels, he battles modernity, the, the modern thing. Um, and um, uh, lets it be known his feelings about the past. Um, which is, I mean, several, before I met you, mm-hmm. and before I listened to your tape, Speaking to the Fitzgerald Society, uh, I would have never known that about Fitzgerald's writings. This is, you know, I've read some of those novels mm-hmm. in the past. Heck, we were required to read uh, yeah. uh, some of them. And, um, but it never dawned on me that he had this sort of background and then feelings and that they wound their way into his writings which were many, what, 160 short stories yeah. and, and then these major novels that he's done that are, you know, considered classics in American literature. Well, you know, we've gone through um, This Side of Paradise and The Beautiful and the Damned, and we come to 1925, and you've got The Great Gatsby, which yeah. everyone in America ought to at least know that that's one of Fitzgerald's great novels. And um, tell us where 
well, first, kind of the story of yeah. the Gatsby, and then where this same thing fits in that story. Yeah. Fitzgerald agonized over writing Gatsby in a way that he hadn't agonized over any writing up until this point, that mm -hmm. this is um, the largest kind of gap in his writing is in time is to produce Gatsby. Um, and the plot of the novel follows a narrator named Nick Carraway, mm -hmm. who, who comes east from the Midwest, which is itself a, a historically laden thing that I'm sure we'll talk about. Um, but Carraway latches on to his next door neighbor, Jay Gatsby, who is attempting to rekindle his romance with their across-the-lake neighbor, Daisy Fay, who before the First World War was Gatsby's lover. Um, but Daisy ended up marrying a man named Tom Buchanan, who in the novel is read as a curmudgeon, white supremacist, miserable man, um, which is a, a modern audience reading it. But at the time, Fitzgerald wrote himself as Tom Buchanan, mm -hmm. that there are some values of Tom that are very much Fitzgerald's. And the novel follows um, Fitzgerald's attempts to rewin this love to mm -hmm. recreate the past, mm -hmm. one could say. And indeed, Gatsby okay. says, you can recreate the, recre um, recreate the past. Um, so it is a historically laden novel, but um, a canonical work of American literature and still a, a staple in, in high school English classes. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was when I was in high school. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And um, the Civil War. Yeah. Where do you see that? Um, in The Great Gatsby. Yeah, so the first place is really in the introduction of the novel where Nick Carraway um, mm -hmm. narrates his life story and he gives it to the reader. And he says that the founder of my line was my grandfather's brother who came here in 51, sent a substitute to the Civil War and started the wholesale hardware business that my, father's, that my father carries on today. And it's this moment that the Carraway family, mm -hmm. um, one, Nick can't see further past than the Civil War, suggesting maybe again this broken link. Yeah. He doesn't talk about his great-grandfather or the family that first emigrated to America. Mm -hmm. It starts with the Civil War generation and mm -hmm. Carraway's lineage and that they make this money during the war. The Carraway mm -hmm. family sees it as a mercantile opportunity. It's Midwesterners. They're implied to be, you know, northern um, uh, soldiers during the war hiring the substitutes for the for the federal army um, and it is one of the the few times that Fitzgerald doesn't give heroic or glowing connotations to military service mm. in the novel but it gets to this idea um, of two contemporary historians in the 1920s Mary and Charles Beard mm -hmm. who are at one point dinner guests with Fitzgerald but they make this argument about the Civil War as a radical restructuring of America's class system and its mm -hmm. economy. And Fitzgerald sees Carraway as really an exemplar of that, that yeah. his family line becomes wealthy during the war through a wholesale hardware business, mm -hmm. um, but that it lets Nick come east to become a stockbroker, um, which mm -hmm. in the words of Frederick Jackson Turner, suggests <laughs> a closing of the American frontier, yeah. that it's no longer go west, young son, yeah. to make your fortune. It's come east to work in the stock market. Wow. 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 Much of that, much of the Great Gatsby, again, is kind of autobiographical. Yeah. Um, his love interests, the, the, the uh, Gatsby's love interests are all just kind of mirror images of, of Fitzgerald's own. Yeah. And um, uh, his uh, uh, 
Fitzgerald had an infatuation with uh, uh, Geneva King. Yeah. yeah. Um, and um, before he was married and never quite kind of got over. This is a Princeton relationship, I think. Uh, I think even back to their St. Paul days. I mean, really? Oh, is yeah. that right? Okay. Yeah, it All was right. uh, really a, a high school sweetheart. A high school sweetheart. All right. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, he he continues to um, uh, uh, apparently had an infatuation with her mm-hmm. most of his life. And and that same figure seems to come into play in The Great Gatsby. Yeah. Um, well, um, let us then go to Tender is the Night. Yes. This is 1934. Um, tell us about that novel. Tender is the Night has an even more tortured backstory than Gatsby does. Um, this is such a long gap for Fitzgerald in the sense that um, his alcoholism has become increasingly problematic. Zelda um, has has developed a severe mental illness that requires a lot of time, finances, and emotional energy for Fitzgerald. Um, and this novel goes through significant plot adaptations. Um, an early iteration of the novel centered it on a young man who kills his mother. Mm-hmm. Um, but he eventually gets through Tender is the Night, which published, um, the novel takes entirely, takes place almost entirely on the French Riviera. Mm-hmm. But it's about American expatriates. And there are lots of hauntings of the Civil War that appear for the characters throughout the novel. Mm-hmm. Describe some of those. Yeah, um, yeah. So the... The, the main character that we really follow through the novel is um, a young, promising psychiatrist named Dick Diver. Mm-hmm. Um, and Fitzgerald, as he introduces Diver to the audience, describes him as, quote, like Grant in his general store in Galena, <laughs> waiting for an intricate rendezvous with destiny. Yeah. And at the end of the novel, which when Diver is financially, emotionally broken through his relationship um, with um, his wife, Nicole, who had become mentally ill, and you can see the resonances mm-hmm. to Fitzgerald's own life, um, that Diver is described as being cast back into obscurity, like mm-hmm. Grant, um, after Grant's presidency, wow. you know, kind of sent back and really just to write his memoirs and then wow. die quietly. Yeah. Um, and so Fitzgerald's fascinated mm-hmm. with that. Grant makes an appearance also in the novel where um, um, Dick Diver visits a battlefield of the Western Front with his companion and friend, not so subtly named gentleman, Abe North, who is kind of foreshadows many things that Diver will experience. And the men debate where the slaughter and butchery of the First World War came from. Mm-hmm. Um, one suggests that Grant invented this kind of warfare at Petersburg mm-hmm. in 1865. And the rejoinder is, no, he didn't. He just invented mass butchery. Um, wow. And they're contemplating this from the trenches of the yeah. First World War. I see. Uh, the, you know, the battlefield remnants, the same way I'm sure many listeners visit battlefields now, uh, that Fitzgerald does visit some battlefields of the First World War in his time overseas, but that it becomes a point in the novel where they debate the change from the Civil War's way of fighting to the First World War. Mm-hmm. These are the use of gas and... Um, 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 First World War is just a bloody mess, really, mm-hmm. uh, when you stop and think about it. It, it uh, a hideous um, a conflict, all of them are, but this one takes the cake in many ways. And 
you can see how this emerges in a novel um, written by a contemporary of World War One. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> note of humor: my my uncle, um, I came. My my mother's family were all German, and they all had. Uh, they were the they were the Tobelmans. T o umlaut b l e m a double n. I mean. They came from Stuttgart in Hanover, Germany. And uh, my, my uncle, uh, Gustav Heinrich Turbelmann, desperately wanted to be a pilot in World War I. And he tried everything to become a pilot in World War I. And the Army wouldn't take him because of his name. <laughs> so he begged him so much, they finally just sent him out to, uh, uh, to Texas where they had a training facility out there. And he trained pilots. And the, his bunkmate was Charles Lindbergh. Oh Can you imagine? And um, those two, these German names, they wouldn't let him be a pilot in World War I. But I can remember Uncle Gush telling me about World War I. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was not a pretty sight in his eye. And even though he never got overseas, yeah. he heard from everybody else who was there how how awful the thing was. Um, The other thing that's interesting, too, um, in terms of history, is that Fitzgerald is born, what, in 1896, I think? And uh, he grows up in the uh, early 1900s, Mm 19-teens, and all the way through the 1920s he's in, in 1930s. Um, and those, those were, that was a time when the Civil War veteran was one of the most prominent figures mm-hmm. in, um, in American life. Yeah. Uh, they were reunioning. Uh, they were in parades. My own family on my father's side came from New York City and in Brooklyn, and um, uh, I once asked my great great aunt, who we brought to Lexington from from New York uh, to live here. Uh, I once asked her one Christmas Eve, if living in New York, did you ever see any Civil War soldiers? Now she was born in 1879, so by 1885. Um, I mean, she was now conscious of Civil War, but she says, oh, Kent, I saw them everywhere. And um, I said, well, anything in particular? Well, her f- father was ran Tiffany's when it was on Union Square in New York City. And her father came in one day, one early one morning, and woke her up and her two sisters, one of whom was my great-grandmother, and said, we're going into the store today. So they all got dressed up. What are we going to do there, Daddy? It was this kind of stuff. You'll see when you get there. And they went across the Brooklyn Bridge. It had just been finished. And um, got to the store. And Nan and her two sisters were seated in little chairs in the picture window. And what did they watch? Grant's funeral procession. And it was 13 miles long. If we, it's hard to even fathom something like this. And it was ve- all veterans. And she would, uh, I'd ask her, you saw William Sherman? And, yes, I did. You see William Sheridan? Uh, 
And she goes, oh, yes, I did. Uh, how did you know it was Sheridan? And she goes, the old men behind us would all tell us, there goes, not he's Philip Sheridan, there goes Philip Sheridan, there goes William T. Sherman. I said, you saw these people? But it, it, when, you, when we talk about the veterans in, this, in that age, the age of, of, um, of uh, Fitzgerald, um, they were everywhere. Yeah. And it, they reminded everyone of mm -hmm. what they did. Yeah. And we, we can't, we've never seen anything quite like that. Mm -hmm. You know, our World War II veterans were quiet about theirs. My father was. Mm -hmm. uh, Vietnam or Korea, they never paraded around. But the Civil War veterans did until the last one died. Yeah. And so that played a, had to have played a huge role in Fitzgerald's feelings and understandings and yeah, for an organization, I forget where I've 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 traveled with this story many places and talked about it. Um, but one thing I did once, and and I really enjoyed it um, for thinking about an audience that's familiar with the Civil War and the the Blue Gray reunions, mm -hmm. um, which many of them happen in my former home of Gettysburg. That's right, the big right? one. So, yeah, so I'm very <laughs> familiar thinking about them. Um, but I love to put up, you know. The, the photo or the screenshot maybe from the Robert Redford Gatsby movie or, you mm -hmm. know, a photo of, of flappers dancing in a, you know, yeah. a jazz club. Um, and to put it next to a photo of Civil War veterans at the reunion yeah. and recognize these are happening at the same time. Yeah. You know, the, some of the great reunions that when FDR unveils the Peace Light Memorial. 1938. Yeah, 1938. Fitzgerald is, is working on a novel called The Love of the Last Tycoon, and he's writing in Hollywood. But there's still Civil War veterans active and being able to visit. And that was something that um, Zelda had even mentioned um, with the Confederate cemeteries. That was when she was a child. She used to sit at their feet and hear their stories. Right. Um, and so that Fitzgerald's generation... Um, they hear these stories from their parents, mm -hmm. um, the people around them. Like you said, right. it's it's an expressive thing that are proud of, and it dominates a lot of American political life right. and expressions from the unveiling of the Lincoln Memorial to right. uh, the reunions that happen in places notable and not so notable. Right, right. Uh, the 1913 reunion yeah. at Gettysburg had to have been the largest ever. And it was of both sides. Yeah. And, um, um, uh, I mean, well, again, they were, they were a dominating influence. Yeah, absolutely. And um, it had, that had to have had a major impact on, yeah. on Fitzgerald. Yeah, I, I'll say in 1913, all those reunions are happening. He's a Princeton classmate of Edmund Wilson. Um, who goes on to later in his career write um, Patriotic War, one of the great works about the Civil War. Yeah. Um, but I often think, and you know, there are some things the historian which we'll never know, but Fitzgerald referring to Wilson as his intellectual conscience wow. and the two of them being friends at Princeton, lifelong yeah. friends who have fascinating correspondence back and forth about the world and writing. I often do wonder, if Wilson and Fitzgerald, as college students do, to avoid having to do work, and Fitzgerald was very good at that in his time at Princeton, <laughs> if they ever kibitzed or talked about the Civil War and its legacy, knowing that these men were both interested in the conflict 
Oh, uh, it's it's something um, I love to think about. Had Fitzgerald lived long enough, what he would have made of patriotic core. Yeah. Because he is a voracious reader of Civil War material. Wow. He loves to read biographies and histories of the war. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when his peers are writing works that are sent at the Civil War, he is going to read them. Yeah. And in the case of Margaret Mitchell's Gone with the Wind, he will reserve some harsh criticism for them. <laughs> but he is so interested in what the Civil War has done to American life. Yeah. He uh, he had a couple of stints in Hollywood. Yeah. Speaking of Gone with the Wind. And he actually did some work on uh, Gone with the Wind, mm-hmm. although he didn't get his name on the credit roll. Uh, tell us about his his sojourns in Hollywood. Yeah. So as the Hollywood was really in its golden age in this moment. And so the screenwriters were looking for great writers who would come and work on the scripts. Mm-hmm. Uh, William Faulkner also makes an appearance in Hollywood in the 1930s. And Fitzgerald sent over there because his name is still pretty good, um, though his really contemporaries knew him as the short story writer, mm-hmm. more so than the novelist. Um, and he gets a couple of Hollywood script writing jobs, and he's on a very nice salary for the Great mm-hmm. Depression. Um, and he bounces among the different studios. Mm-hmm. Um, but he becomes particularly interested in Irving Thalberg, who is mm-hmm. like the Hollywood golden boy mm-hmm. before his untimely passing of, I believe, tuberculosis. Mm-hmm. Um, but Fitzgerald is um, gets put onto a lot of different movies because of his talent for writing dialogue is mm-hmm. what they, they think he, he'll be great at. Um, and he's also on the wagon mostly in Hollywood. So we get some productivity out of him. Um, but he is, despite any indications, not that great at screenwriting. Mm-hmm. Um, he doesn't enjoy it except for the money that it gives him to give him time off to write his own novels. Yeah. Um, but he gets a job as uh, polishing up the script on Mitchell's um, film adaptation of Gone with the Wind. Mm-hmm. And he laments that he had to carry the book around like it was a work of scripture. <laughs> and that the only words and things he was able to use on the script for the movie had to come right from Mitchell's book, mm-hmm. which is an adherence to the text I wish modern Hollywood could only capture. Oh, As someone who uses films in their classroom many of times, it'd make my life much easier. <laughs> uh, but... That he writes on Mitchell's adaptation of Gone with the Wind is um, fascinating because it's one of, you know, it's best-selling novel of its time. Oh, my gosh, it's smash. Um, And uh, his daughter, Fitzgerald's only daughter, Scotty, is at Uh this moment. um, I don't know if she's studying English, but very interested at Vassar College. Mm -hmm. Um, And he tells her um, in a response that Scotty had said she's reading Dorian Gray picture of Dorian Gray. And he says something along the lines of, you should read Dorian Gray because it's in the low brackets of literature, the same way Mitchell's Gone with the Wind is in the higher brackets of crowd entertainment. (laughs) Uh, And he goes on to say, um, he feels um, only a certain, he feels no contempt, but a certain pity for those who um, pictured Gone with the Wind as the great achievement of the human mind. He is he recognizes the novel has popular success, but in a, a critical way, he is not a fan of the novel, mm-hmm. which is a, a fascinating uh, thing to think about. wonder what his, his objections were. Yeah. Did, have you ever? He, he, does, he does write. Um, he says the novel is not all that original 
and draws heavily on all that has been written before uh-huh. about the war. That's his main piece of criticism because um, I guess he he had a bone to pick that Mitchell had borrowed from some other contemporaries who were writing novels about the Civil War. And so he, I forget who he sends that criticism to, but he definitely um, is not a fan of the novel himself. Yeah. Um, I think in part because of his, his time having to write it yeah. in, uh, in Hollywood and very jealous that he, his own films yeah. were never really the same way. Yeah. That has to stand to me, to me, as one of the greatest yeah. films ever made to me, Gone with the Wind. Still, what, 1939? Yeah. And David Selznick nearly went, went broke in the middle of it and had to call Jock Whitney to get him another million dollars to finish the thing. <laughs> Jock Whitney did it. And by the way, Jack Whitney and C.B. Whitney both lived out here. And oh, just were Both horsemen, yeah. Um, but um, it truly has to be one of the great films ever made. But um, uh, I find uh, Fitzgerald fascinating. Um, uh, he has this influence from his father uh, about the Civil War, mm-hmm. from his wife and his courtship days uh, with his wife, future wife. Uh, there's more Civil War, deeper Confederate interests than ever there. And then he grows up into adulthood in this age of the Civil War veteran. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, so why wouldn't he have that uh, that uh, almost dislike of modernity yep. and a uh, 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 a constant hearkening back to how wonderful it was. The mm-hmm. values were then not an uncommon thing today. Yeah, yeah. He um, he like many even, you know, today uses history as a touchstone mm-hmm. uh, for understanding his world. And I think that's um, when, when reading Fitzgerald's novels, which I hope your listeners will, will, will maybe pick up that copy of Gatsby so off too. the shelf um, to think about that this novel was written, yes, in the 1920s, but those in the 1920s had to be looking back at something. Right. Um, and Fitzgerald finds himself looking all the way back to the Civil War. Wow. Wow. This has been absolutely fabulous. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being here. Yeah, this is this has been wonderful. I appreciate you having me on. We'll have, we'll have you back. <laughs> I, I would I would love that. I'll have to come up with a new project that's worth talking about. I'll have to get get back to the archives here. Again, thanks a lot, Cameron, for showing up. It's really great. It's great to see you, and um, uh, best of luck. Yeah, thank you. In I your, appreciate in your uh, your quest for your master's degree and your PhD. It's just terrific. Thank you. I appreciate that. Become an American hero who participates in our mission by joining us at witnessinghistory.org. Download our documentaries and free teacher education materials that conform to grade-level education standards at pbslearning.org. Follow Witnessing History on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn.